Well, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to another episode of 747 Conversations. This year, we're focusing in on something most people never really think about when they think about gratitude, and that's gratitude to the hard times, the resilience of gratitude. We're going to bring on people who have somehow figured out a way to hack the system, processing traumatic moments in their past, and getting through it. Not only getting through it, but thriving. Today, we've got a pretty awesome guest with us, Todd Churches. He's the CEO and co-founder of Big Blue Gumball, an innovative New York City-based management consulting firm specializing in leadership development, public speaking, executive coaching. He's also a three-time award-winning adjunct professor of leadership at NYU. He's a lecturer of leadership at Columbia, and he's also a member of Marshall Goldsmith's exclusive MG100 program. Today, we're going to be talking about his new book that Simon & Schuster released last week, uh, last year, called Visual Leadership, also known as Visual Leadership, (laughs) leveraging Uh. the power of visual thinking and leadership in life. Now, I read this book all... 60 chapters. It's behemoth. Very well researched. I read this book and I saw the principles of gratitude come up so, so, so much. And we're going to dive into that. But before we begin, I first want to say, welcome, Todd, and happy Friday. Chris, it is a happy Friday after a, a long week of long hours. It's nice to be capping my week off talking to you. Can't be uh, the only thing that would be better if we were sitting down over a bowl of pasta. Other than that, it's uh, it's a great way to cap off the week. That'll come soon, and I know <laughs> you res- you responded to an email uh, to our team. I think at like two a.m. Uh, okay. after an eighteen-hour workday. So you you certainly have a lot of things going on. We can't thank you enough for sitting down with us. The first question that we always start off our podcast with is, Todd, if you could give credit or thanks to one person in your life that you don't give enough credit or thanks to, that you've never thought to thank, and get this, that's not represented on the first page of acknowledgments of your book, that's not there, who would that be? Yeah, the, the, my book is dedicated first to my wife, secondly to my parents, and thirdly to all the horrible bosses I've had without whom my career would not have been possible. So we'll, we'll put those aside for right now. Um, what was interesting is when I wrote my book, I actually had to sit down and think about my acknowledgments, if you, if you know this, is three pages long. So I actually mm-hmm. would force myself to sit down and think about who are the people. But if I had to pick just one person who really turned my life around, it was Mr. Patterson, my high school English teacher who I, who I had in 10th grade. And then again, for two classes in 12th grade. So um, he's someone who, when I wrote my book, I actually reconnected with him after almost 40 years and sent him a signed copy. And uh, that was a great moment for me to be able to send that to him and and reconnect with him after all the impact that he's had on my life. I mean, what, talk to me about that impact. What was it about his teaching style? His, what did he see in you? Uh, What'd you guys fight about? What was that like? Uh, Yeah. I mean, long story short, I, I, describe myself now as a, uh, a three B's kind of guy. I was always a back of the room behind the scenes bookworm. 
So um, I am an extreme introvert by nature. Even though I talk loud and fast because I'm a native New Yorker, I am usually the last one to come to a party and the first one to leave. Um, I usually don't go over the people introduce myself unless I'm introduced to them or they come over first. So that's just my nature. It's like I'm not shy. I love talking to people. But um, especially when I was in junior high school and high school, I was extremely introverted, extremely shy, uh, not a lot of confidence, even though I was a good student, a good athlete. And Mr. Patterson just saw something in me. Um, one time a kid, I was, I was bullied. I was, I'm six foot four. And in high school, I was like six feet tall and thin. And I was kind of bullied. So one day I was taking a test and some two kids were like um, cheating by looking at my paper. And Mr. Patterson came over and said, Todd, I'm sick of your cheating. That's how you're getting hundreds on all these tests. Go sit in the back corner. And I like wiped my brows like, oh, thank you, Mr. Patterson. You just rescued me without embarrassing me. So it was just like he used humor. He used warmth. He used compassion. Um, he's caring, empathetic. I mean, all those qualities, very rare in a teacher. I mean, it's, a lot of teachers have skills and knowledge um, to, to actually connect with a student and, and spot the potential in someone um, is unique. And he single-handedly like gave me the confidence to say, you know, I could be successful. And, and, and um, he introduced me to Shakespeare and poetry. And um, I ended up being an English literature major in college, even though I teach business now. Um, so he was just a huge influence on my life. And, and uh, all these years later, he's still with me. I love it. You know, I, I don't know. There's a couple different parts about that story, which maybe it was the way you told it, knowing what you know about this topic, visual leadership. But I, I want to say a few things. I see what you're saying. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I actually could could picture you describing this man in a few different parts of your story. First of all, the the three B's that you said, the mm-hmm. back of the room, bookworm. Behind the scenes. Behind the scenes. There's a very visual and vivid picture. Did you know that the way you were describing yourself would be so visually oriented when telling that story or, or was that happen, happenstance? It's, I think it's so ingrained in me now. It's the way I think and it's the way I process uh, and visual storytelling is something we could talk about. Like how do you paint a picture with words? How do you transport someone to another time and place? And I've even, even Mr. Patterson was like a relatively newer teacher. He was 35, but he was already silver haired. He wore aviated glasses. He was like these, this cool hip guy that all the girls were in love with. Um, and he's just like a different type of, so it's like just painting a picture with words. You can actually picture him almost in your mind's eye. And I don't even know, he looked like Robert Redford. Basically, if you picture Robert Redford at age 35 with silver hair, that's what Mr. Patterson looked like. So it's just, you know, the ability to transport someone through storytelling is one of the things that's, uh, central to my work. Yeah. I mean, you're talking about, you know, wanting to do business or wanting to lead people who believe in what you believe in, see what you see. The minute that you can correlate someone's favorite teacher to a famous actor and put that visual in their head, you not only get their attention, but they can comprehend it and then they can retain it, which is the, you know, ACRs of your, uh, your book. Tell me, you know, before we spend this time really talking about different things in your book, tell me the story of when visual leadership first came to you. And when you realized that visuals could overcome language barriers, could overcome a great divide, and then 
Why did you end up dedicating this entire book to this concept? You know, I grew up, you know, a few things. One is uh, I talk about this in my, my TED talk that I did two years ago in uh, the TEDx Chelsea Park in New York. Um, I, growing up, I was a TV addict. I was like one of these kids of the, you know, baby boomer gen. I'm on the cusp of baby boomer and gen X. I grew up watching TV superheroes as many of us did. And when people would say when I was five years old, what do you want to be when you grow up, Todd? I would say, I want to be Superman. And they would say, oh, that job's taken. Well, if you can't be Superman, what would you do? I'd say, all right, Batman. So it's like that, that was my two career aspirations was to be Superman or Batman. And what's interesting as an executive coach, which is why I am now, there's still that rescuer thing happening there. One of the reasons my personal mission statement is making the world a better place, one leader at a time. And to me, everyone's a leader. So with Superman, I don't have x-ray vision and super speed and super strength, but I have visual thinking as my superpower. And Batman had his utility belt, right? And my utility belt is all my coaching, visual thinking tools, tips, and techniques. So in a way... I kind of lived out that fantasy of uh, helping to make the world a better place and using those superpowers. So that's one way of, again, growing up with the visuals of television. And I was a big reader. And Mr. Patterson, who I just mentioned, he got me hooked on Shakespeare. The year before, we had done Romeo and Juliet with another teacher. And I had no idea what Shakespeare was, what they were saying. The language was confusing. Mr. Patterson, when we were doing Julius Caesar, he made it interesting, exciting, engaging. And I got literally hooked on it. And I went on to read after Julius Caesar. I read Macbeth, Hamlet, and King Lear, and I just went straight ahead. So one of my th- accomplishments in high school, one of my few, was that I read the complete works of Shakespeare by the time I was eighteen. The, <laughs> the entire Riverside Shakespeare, all 154 sonnets, four poems, and 37 Shakespearean plays. So that's all due to Mr. Patterson. He just got me. He made it real, brought it to life, and it inspired me. And and um, this is saying that uh, the best teachers don't. don't burn the fire under people, but burn the fire within them. And that's what he did. He light, lit that fire of curiosity and with, and gave me the confidence that I could do it. So um, so the visual thinking started with like television and reading and literature and metaphor. That's all about visual thinking. But um, the first time I actually used it in real life, where I had that light bulb go off saying, hey, this is kind of interesting, was when I was working as a production um, assistant at a theme park design company in LA. I'm from New York. I lived in New York my whole life. And then I moved out to LA, um, to Hollywood to try to get a job in the TV industry. And I did work for Aaron Spelling, Columbia Pictures, Disney, and CBS. Um, and then I ended up in the theme park business as a project coordinator and they made me a project manager and they shipped me off to China to oversee this three week, um, installation. But when I got there, no one on the Chinese side spoke any English and we spoke no Chinese. And I was like, how are we going to get this done? And I literally picked up a pen and paper and started drawing things, sketching out, where, th- like mapping out where things should go and drawing out tools. And, and through the course of doing that, I was able to quote, as you referenced, get people to see what I was saying. And we got it done all through sign language, uh, body language and drawing. I was literally, I said, it's like, it was like playing Pictionary and Charades. Two words sounds like screwdriver, you know? So, so um, <laughs> that's a lot. When I reflected on it, I realized that we commute communicate visually more than we really think about, not just verbally. And then it took years before I finally developed this concept to the point where it was part of my coaching, my training, my teaching, and ultimately my book. But that's the that's the story behind its origins. I love an origin story. So that's my origin story. Yeah. And, and you know, I, I don't think it, you know, we, we have a, we have an interesting similarity is that I started off my career in show business and then I transitioned into 
you know, leadership development or whatever mm-hmm. we do here at 747 yeah. with the bowl of pasta sauce. Uh-huh. But um, you, 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 even though you have no career in TV anymore, you, you got your master's degree in emotion, in humanity, in mm-hmm. life from very well-known people. I mean, Aaron Spelling was the, for, for Gen Xers and baby boomers, he was huge. Yeah, I, was working <laughs> on Dyna- I was working on Dynasty. I was putting scripts together and Linda yeah. Evans or, or John Collins would stop by and say, I came to, you know, is my script ready? And it was like, for and, a 24, 24 year old kid, it was like surreal. And, and it goes back to, you know, my hypothesis that the, the MFA is the new MBA. Mm-hmm. People in the future, companies in the future, aren't going to need a bunch of well-read, academic, uh, technical, you know, uh, folk. They're going to need emotional ability to connect, ability to to lead and inspire and motivate people. And part of what you do with an MFA, a master's in fine arts, is you learn the power of storytelling. Now, part four of your book is all about visual stories. And you quote that unlike just delivering facts or data, like going into a presentation, just having bullet points, stories are human. Stories are emotional. Stories are compelling. Stories are engaging. Stories are universal. And the key from your leadership perspective is to use stories purposefully. Tell me why you dedicate an entire part of your book to stories. Yeah, I mean, stories, as, I, as you just quoted, it's like, you know, children tell stories, grandparents tell stories. If someone says, how was your day today? So you wouldn't believe what happened to me. That's a story. So um, stories have beginnings, middles, and ends. There are victims, villains, and heroes. It's like, why do we watch reality shows? Why do we watch documentaries? Why do we enjoy sports? Sports are a story, um, right? So there's a quest for something. There are obstacles and barriers that stand in our way. There's success stories and there are also failure stories, right? There's cautionary tales from which we could learn. Eleanor Roosevelt said, learn from the mistakes of others. Life's too short to make them all ourselves, right? So from, you know, as a boss, you could say to someone, do this or don't do that. But imagine if your boss said to you, let me tell you about when I had your job, let me tell you about the worst mistake I ever made. Don't you think that employee is going to like lean forward and be like, plus it doesn't make you as a boss, as a manager, as a leader, make you vulnerable, make you more human make you more empathetic and compassionate when other people are learning and they're making mistakes. So it just connects us. It bonds us. And one of my mottos when I teach, uh, do team building workshops is that team bonding needs to come before team building and that we need to connect to each other if we want to work better with each other. And I know that you believe in that because your, your whole you know, business is based on that concept, <laughs> right, of connecting to each other so you can work better with each other. I love that. I, actually, my, my buddy's... Uh, David Goldstein's company is called teambonding.com, mm, teambonding.net. Yeah. And they're a six-time Inc. 500 um, firm who, uh, one of the fastest growing private companies in the country, six wow. years running, just producing team bonding events, not mm. team building, yeah. team bonding. And I've never, yeah. I've never asked them to make the difference. Can you repeat Eleanor Roosevelt's quote one more time? Sure. She said, um, learn from the mistakes of others. Life is too short for us to make them all ourselves. So let me ask you a question directly related to chapter 53. You talk about study the failures of others so you don't make them yourself. Mm -hmm. But in chapter 53, you say this great novel idea, 
how reading literature and other forms of non-business books can actually benefit you, you know, in in work and life. How does it behoove you not to study necessarily the business mistakes of others, but to study the life and literature mistakes of others? You know, it's interesting is when I majored in, I told my father I was going to be an English literature major and major in, with a concentration in Shakespeare and poetry. He's like, poetry? What do you do? Sit around under a tree rhyming all day? It's like he couldn't, like my father was an IRS agent and an accountant. So he couldn't wrap his head around how you'd make a living as a poet. So, but what's interesting is so much of the work I do today is grounded in my background in literature. It's like from plays, from, as you know, from theater, from novels, from poetry, um, from fiction, the stories, right? We learn about human beings and, and gratitude and, and, um, and, and lack of gratitude and decisions we make and the impact we have on others. Um, Dale Carnegie once said that uh, the words we say to someone, we may forget two minutes later, but may linger with the other person for the rest of their lives, right? So it's like <laughs> when you read something like that or you read a story like Hamlet or really you know, pick, pick any story, um, there are leadership lessons. I always say that there are, to my students, leadership lessons are hiding in plain sight if we, if we are wise enough to look for them. So any movie, just flip channels. Go watch any show tonight on Netflix or TV and watch it through the lens of leadership, and you will see lessons there of all kinds um, that will help you to be more effective both at work and in life. Uh, you know, I mean, it's you know, it's interesting. The um, I'm learning, I'm relearning Italian right now, mm. and I've got two tutors. One tutor is um, like a a grammar tutor. We're really, you know, doing it the linear, you know, from start to finish way. And the other is more like a conversational tutor. Mm. And she is really um, committed to learning about gratitude and teams and leadership and everything and teach me Italian words through, you know, that, that lens. And one of the things she did was she taught me you know, I talk about team building all the time Mm -hmm. and she taught me how to use, um, uh, the, the Italian translation of teams is la squadra, la squadra rooted in the feminine, talking about squads, talking about, Mm -hmm. you know, these great units. And it, it brings me back to a line in your book where it, where you quote a French novelist famously saying the real voyage of discovery consists not in seeking new lands, but in seeking new eyes, See, seeing with new eyes, seeing, with seeing, new eyes. seeing, sorry, seeing with new eyes. Tell me, tell me how good uh, that that actually is in proving that innovation and leadership is just history repeating itself, looking different. There's really no true innovation in the world. It's just repackaged mm-hmm. goods. Yeah, yeah. Tell me yeah. about that in leadership. Like someone, someone said to me, there are two stories in life. One is a man goes on a journey and the other is a stranger comes to town. And it doesn't have to be a man. It could be a woman also. But think about all, think about if you went, if you just said one story is about someone going out there into the world, another one's about a stranger coming to town. You could probably think about there's a million Twilight Zone episodes that deal with that. There's probably a, a million movies that deal with that theme, right? So if you could simplify complexity and like you're saying, strip it down to its essence, you know, people are people, regardless of culture, regardless of history. And one of the things I do, when I talk about the history of visual communication. The first example I show is cave drawings. 
from 44,000 mm -hmm. BC. You know, you see a caveman holding a spear, chasing a bison near a fire. That's a story, right? Someone 44,000 years ago put that up on a, on a cave wall, right? And then we have hieroglyphics from uh, uh, ancient Egypt, pictograms that turned into the alphabet that we know today. In 1999, emojis were invented, right? So think about how we're using emojis as nonverbal means of communication. And they could also get us into trouble. A woman told me a story about um, a friend of her, hers, uh, her um, uh, mother passed away, and instead, she wasn't wearing her glasses, and instead of clicking the emoji for the teardrop, she clicked the emoji with the, the smile face, the laughter with the, tear, the, the sweat, the bead of sweat from the head. So she clicked on the, so one was like, her mother passed away and she accidentally clicked laughter as opposed to its tear. And hmm. someone else saw it before her friend saw it and said, oh, my God. And she went back and she deleted it and she corrected it. But just think about just how you could click the wrong button with an emoticon and completely send someone the, the wrong message. Right. So the power of visuals, our facial expressions, our body language, we don't even think about those things. So, um you know, we're always communicating with people, both verbally and non-verbally. And our visuals is, you know, we take in information through our ears, but also through our eyes. And and you you mentioned over complexity, mm -hmm. and you mentioned metaphors, and you mentioned, you know, these um, these things are really eating up at people. You get stressed that you communicate improperly. You get stressed that you've got an overly, com you know, complex life. Well, you've got a chapter chapter 24, which is about helping people save time in the long run, help them focus, be more purposeful, make better decisions, become less stressed, ultimately change your life for the better. Chapter 24 has to do with black socks as a way of simplifying your life. Tell me about that. Yeah, the long story is, if you remember when we used to travel on business and we had to pack our bags for like a, a few days or a couple of weeks, you know, I'd spend hours like coordinating my tie and my suit and my socks and make sure my socks were matching. And then I realized that I was spending like an hour just picking out socks, you know, and sometimes like almost <laughs> missing my flight. So I realized, what if I just switched to black socks when my clients say, that's it, I don't want to work with him anymore. So... I basically took what so I went to Macy's in time in Herald Square and I bought like 18 pairs of black socks and I just started wearing black socks. Now I know there are people um, who are like love their colored socks and everything else. I'm not criticizing. I'm just saying I took a complex uh, one more decision that I didn't need to make and I simplified it by basically commoditizing something. So if you think about what are the decisions that you make, like which toothpaste should I use today? You know, sometimes you want to make decisions like, oh, which wine should we have with tonight's pasta dinner, right? But other times, think about all the decisions that we make that take up our time and stress us out that maybe we don't need to make if we could just simplify them. So that's the, the metaphor of black stock decision-making is <laughs> what can you simplify just so you have one less decision to make so you could free up your brain cells for making uh, for more important things? Yeah, you even quote, you know, a lot of great Henry David Thoreau, Albert Einstein, Leonardo da Vinci in that same, you know, chapter about mm -hmm. simplicity is the ultimate sophistication. Now, before we got on the podcast, um, you know, I told you that a lot of your writing reminds me of ancient Stoic philosophy. Mm -hmm. You're talking about things written 2000 years ago by Marcus Aurelius and Seneca the Elder that apply to life today. And it's you know, it's really highlighted in Mark Manson's book, The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck. It's not about mm -hmm. 
It's not about not giving hoots about other things. It's about don't give a hoot about other things that you shouldn't give a hoot about so that you have more time, effort, and energy to give a hoot about things you should give a hoot about. Now, you invented something in November called November. No, <laughs> November. What did what did that do to help you focus? Yeah, I read a blog post. I was, I was, you know, I'm a yes person. I'm a people pleaser. I, I hate saying, you know, turning people down. So anytime I have someone ask, if someone says, hey, Todd, do you have an article on something? If I didn't, I'd spend three hours researching it and send them five things. And half the times, you know, there wasn't the gratitude of thank you so much. That was so nice. It was like, oh, I got it. Thanks. Right. So I was like, why was I investing so much time into one-on-ones with people and doing podcast interviews with everyone who asked? I finally realized I was just, I wasn't prioritizing. I wasn't getting my own stuff done. And one of my mottos is that saying no to others allows you to say yes to yourself. And I wasn't saying yes to myself. So I was up for ridiculous hours. I still am a little bit, but at least now I'm more focused on the things I need to. But my blog post for the month of November was make this month a November. And just start thinking Mm. about what are some things. You know how in improv they say yes and? I said Mm -hmm. make it say no but. No, I can't (laughs) do it now, but I could do it for you next week. No, Mm. I can't do this, but I know someone who can. Right. So it's not just that made me feel a little bit better because I wasn't just saying, no, don't bother me. I was saying, no, I'm sorry, I can't. But maybe I can help you in some other way. That gave me the permission. I was still helping the person, but I didn't have to own their problem. So it just kind of just for that reframing freed me up from that obligation, that guilt of having to say no sometimes. You know, I love it. The uh, the no, but the yes, the yes. And, you know, it, it reminds me of a kind of a you know the uh the the i don't think duplicity is the the right word but but the duality of life mm-hmm. and you know we we were talking about it you were talking about picking out wine with italian food etc mm-hmm. and it got me thinking about you know italian culture and i said squadra and there's a couple references to italian words in your book um at least italian looking words in the uh-huh. book that we're going to get to for this question but it reminds me of something that I uh, felt at the beginning of the pandemic. So at the beginning of the pandemic, my whole world was shattered. All my live events, my book tour, all my client engagements, everything evaporated. And we had to turn to producing virtual gratitude experiences, which at the start of the pandemic, I literally produced a virtual gratitude experience every single day of the week Mm. for free for our community. And that's where we originally met at some of those early, you know, now we do them for clients, but we did them every night of the week for free for our community. At the same time that I was doing that, I was actually falling in love with gardening and baking and taking walks in safe ways and and doing things really slow. And it reminded me of the region why I mentioned Italian culture, it reminded me of the region of Emilia Romagna. Emilia Romagna, you're going to get where I'm going with this, is known as the land of fat, uh, slow food and fast cars. It's the land not only of Maserati, Lamborghini, De Tomaso, the fastest cars on the planet, but it's also this, the land of the slowest food. Balsamic vinegar, di Modena, which is you know, take, takes 25 years to age, uh, prosciutto di parma which takes 36 months parmigiano reggiano which takes 36 months these are slow food yet fast cars and in chapter 50 of your book you say slow down your thinking to speed up your progress 
And you talk about Daniel Kahneman in his book, Thinking Fast and Slow, takes a deep dive on how we can be more effective simply by by slowing down. You're a fast talker. How important is chapter 50 to you? It and is. What is your, what is your as- Italian sounding formula to get through it? Uh, Parla. <laughs> yeah. Well, I didn't invent uh, the Parla model is not from thinking fast and slow, but the book thinking fast and slow by Daniel Conner is one of the best books I've ever read. It's about 500 pages. And I actually, I got a hernia a couple of years ago and had to have surgery. I think it was because I lifted that book uh, without stretching <laughs> first because it was so, it, it, so it was a little daunting. It was on my nightstand for like a year before I got to it, but I just loved it. It just, when we think fast, we're going intuitively, gut instinct, responding. Thinking slow is just hitting the pause button and letting it sink in for a second and then making the wiser, better decision. So just that idea of thinking slow. But the Parla model is just one of those models that's out there. I don't know who originated it, but it's an acronym. Um, Parla stands for problem. Action, result, learning, and application. So um, let's say you're on an interview or you're meeting with a client. And basically when they ask you questions, they're basically figuring out, can you do this job? Can you do what I'm asking them to do? A lot of times they ask you questions about the past, like have you done this before, right? So the parlor model is, you know, have you ever, the P is for problem. Tell me about a time where you faced this situation. That was a problem you faced, right? The A is what's the action you took? What did you actually do about it? What was the result you achieved? And it could have been positive or negative. You could have completely failed, right? But here's the result. So that's all about the past. The problem, the action, and the result are from the past. The L is what did you learn, right? What did you take from that experience? Whether it worked out or not, you must have learned something. And Nelson Mandela, one of my favorite quotes of his is, I never lose. I either win or I learn, right? So Mm -hmm. we should always be learning from everything. And then the last A is application. Based on what you learned, how would you apply that learning and that knowledge in this context, in this job, in the future? Right. So it goes from past to present to future. So just structuring a story using that model is a very powerful way to convince someone that you could do the job or you can, you know, you're what they're looking for. Mm-hmm. And and you know, it's such a beautiful model. But not only, you know, people could say, "All right, so I got I got the model." But what what does the model actually bring me? And one of the things that this model brings you is confidence, confidence mm-hmm. in hiring a candidate or when you're just being asked the question about that problem that you had to solve, you gain the confidence knowing that you got through it when a, you know, an interviewer is asking you, you know, in this, in this book, um, you, you know, you dedicate the entire book to not only your, your wife, um, and, and a few other people, but also to every, um, uh, to your parents, uh, but to all the many, way, way too many, as you say, huh. horrible, horrible bosses you've had over the course of your career. You've taught me more about management and leadership than I ever wanted to know. Chapter 44 is all about regaining your confidence and recapturing your mojo after a setback and how, you know, you can control how you choose to react and respond to a negative situation. Tell me about the day that you thought you went extinct. <laughs> and how you bounce back from that. Yeah. Yeah, I was working for a Wall Street financial services company. I was based in Midtown Manhattan on uh, 37th and 7th. And I love my job. I love my boss. I love the culture. I love the company. It was re- I really thought I'd be at this company for the next 10 or 15 years. And then the financial crisis hit. And uh, they tried everything possible not to lay people off. But then out of the blue, my boss, who was actually coincidentally my best friend or one of my best friends, had to come in one day and say, unfortunately, I don't know if you heard, but there were going to be layoffs. And unfortunately, you're in the first group. You're one of the first 25. So um, 
you know, it's 10 in the morning and it's like, here I am at the job that I was going to every single day for three years. It's like, what do I do? Like, I, I didn't, I was like deer in the headlights and I had to leave. Um, he said, you know, we'll talk about it. You can give me a call later or whatever. So I like, he said, you don't even need to take your stuff home today. Just you know, put it in a box and we'll ship it to you, whatever. Just So I walked out and I'm like, Midtown Manhattan, 10 o'clock in the morning when I should be at work. It's like, what do I do? Should I call my wife? And I just started walking up Broadway. And I just kept walking and walking. And next thing I knew, I had walked from 37th Street all the way up to 81st Street. And I was in front of the Museum of Natural History. Um, and I didn't, I wasn't ready to go home and confront my wife or deal with the realities. I just went in. I, you know, I, I, I was a member. I, I went in and I spent like the next two hours at least, maybe even three, just wandering around the museum and looking at dinosaurs and the planetarium. And I stopped off in Asia and Africa. And it's just... You know, what's interesting, it just gave me this perspective. It's like these dinosaurs went extinct. All of these things in the museum are no longer around, but I'm still around, right? So, like, mm -hmm. I need to reinvent myself. So what's interesting, it gave me a sense of perspective. And then by the time I got home and I told my wife, I was actually in a much better mindset, right? Um, so sometimes we need that, just give ourselves that time and space and breathing room just to like, kind of put things in perspective and proportion and say, you know what, you know, I've gone through worse things than this and I'll bounce back and I just need to figure out what's next. But so anyway, that was my story about how I, uh, how the museum of natural history kind of helped me gain my sense <laughs> of perspective again. Well, you know, it, it gave you perspective. It gave you confidence. It gave you mojo. You know, it also gave you your groove. Mm -hmm. And for anybody that's going through this, you don't have to be laid off in order to get your groove back. Right. You you can you can remember times from your past in which you've succeeded and that will give you the confidence to know that you can persevere the next time you're gonna be, you know, faced with it. You famously say it's not if you will bounce back, but when. Mm -hmm. And so remaining positive and resilient, you know, are the key to your future successes. We are in the gratitude space. And a lot of people, you know, last year when we're talking about our team bonding events <laughs> or team building events would always say, you know, I remember one client, one of the biggest companies in the world, we had already done 10 experiences with them. And then they came to us and they said, we've got this special group that's going through a really tough time. And we'd, we'd like you to send a proposal on what you would do with them, except um, their specific demographic is going through one of the worst chapters in their demographics history. So I don't think gratitude is a good thing to talk to them about. I said, what? Mm. They didn't get that giving gratitude to the tough times that have happened in your past builds the resilience and the positive affect needed to get through tough times. Yeah. 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 Some of the best, you know, one of the, things that people are talking about now is how, you know, the roaring twenties, uh, you know, and, and the innovation that came after the great depression, um, you know, was, was, you know, setbacks kind of set you up for the next leap forward. Right. So sometimes yeah. um, bad things give us a sense of perspective, but like, you know, like right now, use this time productively. I started writing a blog post. I never got to finish, but it was called, these are one of those days. And the idea was, you know, how people always say one of these days I'm going to X, like you said, learn Italian or learn to cook or read more books or, you know, you're never going to have more time and discretionary time and control 
over you know your day-to-day schedule than you do right now or you have over the pandemic. So this is the time to kind of say what's what are like one thing or two things that if you had more time uh, or what was on your to-do list, and even if you don't finish it, you could start it, right? You could take those piano lessons. You can watch those videos that you always wanted, never got around to. So um, yeah, it's just a re- it's reframing, right? It's like putting I, when I talk about reframing things. Um, real life story. My wife got a painting at I think like Home Goods or something. And I didn't love it, but then she got a different frame, and I was like, wow, I really love it now. So the same painting, she changed the frame. It changed everything. It changed my perspe- perception of it, whether I liked it or not. So. What in your life, by putting a new frame around it, might you be able to like it more or have a new appreciation for it? I love that. Um, and, you know, one of the things that, that, you know, one of the things that's happening to people is that we're stagnant. You know, we don't know what that next thing that we're going to do is. Getting from zero to one is often harder than getting from one to ten. Taking that huh. first step yeah. is also scary. But here's an interesting thing. You know, I'll challenge what you said about using this time to learn the piano, to build your brand, to do the this, to do that. That would make you more interesting to people. Mm -hmm. But to close out, I want to quote what you talk about in chapter 55, which is why it's more important to be interested Mm -hmm. than interesting. And that now, you know, before or unlike any other time in human history, this is actually an, an opportunity to give rather than to get, to be a good listener, to be interested in others more than you're interesting yourself, to be the guide, not the hero. Mm-hmm. Tell me about that chapter. Yeah, uh, long story short, it was New Year's Eve a couple of years ago. My wife and I were at a New Year's Eve party on the Upper West Side at a friend who's an actor. And a lot of people there were actors and people in the theater world. And we were in the kitchen and this guy was talking to us and he kept talking about, you know, I keep going on these all these auditions and I never get anything. I'm so perfect for it. I don't get anything. And I wish I could meet more casting directors. And there's one casting director in particular, I'll just call him Mr. X, um, that I wish I could meet because he does everything. He does all my favorite shows, and I wish I could get to meet him. And he just kept going on. It's like a 10-minute monologue, and then he walked out of the room, right? Meanwhile, the guy, Mr. X, who was talking about, that was my college roommate, and we literally just came from having dinner with him before we got to this party. But he didn't never stop to ask me, who are you? What do you do? What's your name? What do you bring to you here? He was just doing this monologue about how much he wished he could meet this famous casting director who's one of my three best friends. Secondly, my wife's a casting director and a casting associate, but he never asked her, hey, who are you? What do you know? How do you know Martin? Anything, like what brings you here? So by being only interested in himself and trying to make himself more interesting to others, he never asked us one single question. And again, we could have opened up and we could have said, hey, I know him or whatever, but we were just, this guy was just such an egomaniac that we didn't feel like being that. My three G's philosophy, by the way, I think I mentioned this to you before, are be genuine, be generous, and be grateful. So um, I have two of them in my book. I have be genuine and be generous, but I later added be grateful because of influences of people like you and Chris Palmore. And I just recently connected. uh, um, uh, Chester Elton had me on this podcast. He wrote the book Leading with Gratitude. So gratitude and gratefulness uh, has become more of my part of my vision and my vocabulary since I met all three of you over the last year. And again, I wouldn't have met any of you if not for the pandemic and Zoom and social networking, right? So, um, but that's my story there about why it's so important to connect with people, ask them questions, have two ears and one mouth, as the saying goes, right? Mm -hmm. Instead of doing all the talking, do a little more listening. And uh, you never know, you may learn something and you may create a great relationship that could be mutually beneficial. 
I love it. Well, Todd, we've we've covered so many things here today, and you know, if if our listeners could believe me when I say it, uh, we didn't even scratch the surface. <laughs> Uh, we, we, we covered, I think five or six or seven chapters out of a book of 60 chapters, which is a consolidation of 2000 pages of your, you know, everything outside this book. Um, so I really encourage everybody to, to go check out this book. You'll learn a heck of a lot of things about management and leadership, or at least leadership from a visual perspective. Um, Todd's the real deal. He's got you know, three-time award-winning adjunct professor. He really knows how to lead and teach. Um, so go check him out. His, the, uh, all the information to his book is in the show, show notes below and his LinkedIn. Definitely give him a reach out. Todd, do you have any last words in closing? Well, you know, just in terms of gratitude, it's like I'm grateful to you and, and everything you do to bring people together. Here's one quick story. I met Mike, Michael Roderick years ago, and then when the pandemic happened, he formed the Gate Group, and then I met you, and I attended one of your 747 dinners. I'd love to do one in person one of these days post-pandemic, but Absolutely. at one of your dinners, I met Maxine Cunningham, who has a startup in Vancouver called PickMyBrain.World, and I'm going to be piloting one of my workshops next month on her site, and that wouldn't have happened if not for meeting her at your dinner. And through yeah. her, I met two other people, Jurgen Strauss in Melbourne, Australia, and Will Reed in Japan, and we're partnering on something. So it's like, oh, you, God, so you just never, so just think about like, you, you just never know who you're going to meet if you just put yourself out there, be more interested than interesting, develop these relationships, and just be grateful for, uh, you know, and, and when you meet someone, if you start with the orientation of how can I help you, not how can they help me, it, it, if... What goes around comes around sometimes, but even if it doesn't, it's still the right and the nice thing to do. So, but it's all about, you know, we're all just trying to survive right now and, and be successful. And, and so just, you know, look to each other with gratitude, like you always say, and just, uh, you know, and, and see how you can start with that orientation of helping. And uh, I think that's a good way to just kick off any relationship. I love it. I love it. Well, Todd, thanks for coming on to all our listeners. Go check it out. If you have any questions, comments, thoughts, concerns, ways you want to partner with Todd and this incredible dialogue, uh, please reach out to him. Go join the gate group. I mm. guess this is also an advertisement for the power of Michael Roderick's community. Yes. who's meant, meant so much to me over these years. So, Todd, thank you for coming. To all our listeners, keep tuning in. We've got wonderful, wonderful episodes lined up for you. So keep hitting that subscribe and share button. and. Uh, Hope you're having a phenomenal day on Earth. Remember, it's your world. Go explore. We'll see you next episode.